Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to your promised weekly episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Rob Santos, joined as I always am, of course, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? Before Drew and I really dive into the meat and potatoes of the episode here, just a friendly reminder that if you like our content and you want to check out extra features like early access to episodes, or you want access to some of our own attempts at writing, or even the ability to suggest future books for us to cover, check us out on Patreon. Or if one-time donations are more your style, we've also got an account on Coffee. That's K-O-F-I. And now for the episode proper, this episode, which I'm pretty sure is episode 156. We'll see how that works out in the future. <laughs> yeah. uh, Drew and I are wrapping up with Daniel Polanski's debut novel, Low Town. We are covering the entire second half of the novel for this episode. So Drew, would you kindly summarize the second half for us? Absolutely. So in the second half, things are spiraling out of Warden's control. Ling Chi's pronouncement of defense on his territory has the pressure on Warden to keep out from between a potential street war, and others have more nefarious plans for him. Another child goes missing, this time the son of Warden's washwoman. With Warden desperate for information and time running out, he goes to meet Yancey about Duke Beaconfield, hoping that he has some leads. From there, he heads to Helm Bridge, where Crispin has information about Operation Ingress. There, he finds Crispin dead, and not just dead, but brutally murdered. Warden quickly grabs a slip of paper with notes about Operation Ingress and hides, as he doesn't want to be pinned for the murder. As he looks at it, he sees Brightfellow's name is on the ripped page. With an appointment to meet with Beaconfield the next morning, Warden heads to the upscale brothel called the Velvet House, to meet with Yancey's informant, the madame of the house, Myrie. She reveals Beaconfield is broke and propositions Warden. Warden declines and leaves, but quickly discovers he's being followed. After attempting to shake the tail, he's cornered by none other than Crowley, who has a whole gang of hired goons and is ready to torture Warden to death. With some slick moves, Warden gets away, but not without injuries. Celia saves him from his wounds and the freezing cold, and promises to help him get more information on Beaconfield and Brightfellow. The following morning, he goes to meet Beaconfield. After watching a duel in which the Duke makes his prowess with the blade abundantly clear, they spar verbally and leave as pronounced enemies. He and Wren pay the scryer Mariki another visit and return to the Earl. There, he receives a note from Myrie, promising more information, so Warden heads out. On the way, he's again ambushed by Crowley's thugs, but Warden outmaneuvers and kills them. After getting his newest set of wounds tended to by a Chiron woman, he gets back to the Earl and finds a note from Celia waiting for him. She has done her divination and uncovered a secret drawer in Beaconfield's desk. To get at it, Warden hires the best thief in town and hatches a plan to attend Beaconfield's party, uninvited, and poison everyone there, making them ill but not killing them. Before he can get back to the Earl and put the plan in motion, though, he finds himself once again tailed by Crowley and hired blades. Warden, determined to put an end to things, leads them into Chiron Town and straight into the jaws of a trap. Ling Chi's muscle takes care of Crowley's, but Warden shows mercy and lets Crowley himself leave alive, if quite a bit worse for wear. After Beaconfield's party and the successful retrieval of the documents, Warden heads back home, only to be met with the worst news yet. Wren has been taken. With multiple deadlines now looming, Warden visits the old man and gives him evidence of Beaconfield's treason. 
then gears up and heads to the Duke's estate. He murders his friend Duncan, the watchman, and confronts Beaconfield. Warden uses his leftover blasting powder from the war to beat the blade, but realizes that he was wrong all along. Time running out, Warden makes for the airy. There, he finds the crane dead, and Celia and Brightfellow with Wren, ready to sacrifice the boy. Warden stops them, and Celia tries to explain. She does not have the skill or knowledge to keep up the crane's wards, and must use the demon to continue keeping the plague away through sacrifices of children with magical talent. It does not sway Warden, however, and Brightfellow tries to attack him. Celia defends Warden, killing Brightfellow, and Warden steals her necklace, the very necklace that binds the demon to her will. He leaves her to be consumed, taking Wren with him. The book ends with the Blue Crane's funeral and the fate of Lowtown hanging in the balance as they wait to see whether or not the plague will return without a magical benefactor protecting them. I can tell you liked this one. That was a nice and... uh extensive uh, summary and very well yeah like oh it's i have so much i want to talk about with style going into it but it'll actually now that i'm taking an objective step back a lot of mine are actually uh uh superficial points so i'll, I'll let you open up style anything um you want to dive into on the meta uh yeah so i want to talk about a couple of things with his prose style uh okay. one of them definitely a deliberate thing um, it's one of these situations where an author clearly has command of the English language, has command of the rules of the English language, and is deliberately breaking one of those rules. And that is comma splices. Huh. Uh, like Patrick Rothfuss in the Kingkiller Chronicle, Daniel Polanski basically doesn't use semicolons. He uses commas in place of semicolons. And so you mm. get you know, you get sentences that are grammatically incorrect but all over the place in this book. But they're deliberately done to uh, to enhance the voice and rhythm that he's going for with this character. You know? Yeah. You, you know, you're actually highlighting one of the points I have written down about Warden, but this is a style point. I just decided to amalgamate this with one of my points on Warden. But I absolutely noticed this with him as a character. I got more of an appreciation in the second half for the multidimensional nature of Warden, his flexibility as a character. I didn't get that myself in the first half. I had thought he was this brute force, take no bullshit, get his hands dirty, and don't underestimate his simple speech with simple thoughts kind of dude. <laughs> then we get these scenes with Ling Chi, and Warden is... Oh. Bruh. So good. Well, does my protector know that innocence is no guard against the wolf and actions born of amity are like to destroy us? You're absolutely right, Drew. Polanski has this very clear ability, this mastery of the English language, but with Warden, when we're inside Warden's brain, we're constantly getting all of these double negatives and awkward contractions everywhere as well. Like, Warden himself is, is not that kind of person, but we still see the ability there. It's yeah. really, really cool to see that dichotomy. Yep. Like, there there are times when you'll be reading a book or, or reading an article or an essay or something like that, and there are comma splices, and you can tell that the comma splices are not there purposefully. They're there because the writer doesn't understand, Fair. you know, how to properly construct a sentence. And then there are times like this, or as I said, with Rothfuss or... Um, even David Farland uh, did this in the Rune Lords. Uh, I've I've seen it in a few different uh, a few different series, but it's it's a deliberate style choice. 
Um, and, and while it can be jarring when you're reading it, once you get used to what it means for the flow of the story, the flow of the narration, it starts to kind of make sense, you know? Yeah. So I, I thought that was absolutely noteworthy. It's not something I see all the time, but I have seen it a few times. And, uh, you know, it, it's not something I ever am going to try to do because it does bother me to, to a certain extent, even if I can appreciate the artistry to it. Yeah. Yeah. I, like, I suppose I wasn't just picking up in the first half on this uh, esotericism, I suppose, of having this protagonist, his main point of view character, capable of complex and flowery speech, but his internal processes, his dialogue are consistently throwing that lower end speech patterns at us. You know, it's, it's really ballsy. It's, it's really, uh, it's, just nothing Polanski has said or has done so far has made me take him for a conformist. So I'm just like, okay, bring it on. I want more of this. Yeah, yeah. Um, so do you have a, a, you know, a style point you want to get to? Because I, I only really have one, well, maybe two big style points left. Um, but so if you want to get something in now, uh, go Yeah, um I noticed, um, I'm sure you noticed as well, that Polanski has this knack for some disgusting yet brilliant jokes. You know? yeah, I, yep. I, I get the impression, I really do get the impression, I don't know why I get this impression, but here it is, all the same, that Polanski's actually stepping maybe a little outside of his comfort zone in reaching for these really dark, gritty jokes. It might just be projection from from me. It's because hmm. I, it could be, I, I'm stepping a little into that of my, out of my own comfort zone recently and writing one character's jokes that I have um, in my series. Um, so I could just be reading way too much into this, but Polanski is so good. He is so good with his turns of phrase and his humor and implication that he can still nail this punchline, even if at times it feels a little gross. Like, fun place to work, I asked, as I grabbed my coat from the rack. He shrugged his shoulders. Three weeks of the month, I nodded sympathetically and left. Yeah. Like, Ooh, that's a, that was a choice to make that joke. Great, great joke, though. Great joke. Uh, I, great I, joke. I, I did highlight that line. Yeah. Um, uh, so it was just like, oh, wow, okay, yes. go there. Deeper in red <laughs> yeah. and virgin on her wedding night. Was, oh, okay. That, yeah. So, that, like, definitely so yeah, colorful. I, I don't feel like, or at least I didn't get the impression that Polanski's reaching for this. The, 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 yeah, it, I, felt, I, it felt very, mm, everything I've read from Polanski has a, a similar kind of humor to it. So, Maybe this is just because I've, I mean, I haven't read that much more than you. I've read one more short story. Hang on. Was I guess. The, did the builders not, or did the builders include a lot of this kind of, oh, oh you was I mean, pretty I mean, dark. Maybe though. not as, yeah, maybe not as like, like graphic graphic. No, you but, know what, if, you're right. Yeah, I think I just have a preconceived notion of it being watership down kid friendly for some reason. The builders. Oh, no. no, absolutely not. No, yeah. never mind. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, I'm definitely, I think I'm projecting a little bit. It just, I, I. I've been experimenting with going a little outside my comfort zone with telling really, really raunchy jokes. And so when I'm getting to this one, I'm like, oh, that's a that's a choice. Oof, God, can I laugh at this? I can laugh at this one, right? And the fact yeah, that yeah. I'm stopping and laughing, can I laugh at this one? Make then I don't know. It was, it was it, they're they are pretty entertaining though, and I want to see them continue. Uh, Warden definitely has this. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to call it lyrical delivery, but they are some colorful uh, and interesting phrases. Yeah, colorful is a good way to put it. Yeah, for um, sure. <laughs> so my last big style point is the title. Good. So the title of this book, as we are reading it today, yes. is Lowtown. Okay. And we didn't talk about this, uh, you know, on the first episode. And I'm actually kind of glad that we didn't. 
because I would have had very different things to say about it only having read half the book versus all of it because the original title of the book, of course, was Straight Razor Cure. And through the first half of the book, I was thinking, you know, like, oh, this is, this is Warden's style. You know, like, this is how he solves problems. Like, is there an illness? I'm going to cure it with a razor to the throat, you know? And, and there was a little bit of that um, impression coming from A Drink Before We Die, the short story we read, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like, he's got a problem, so he's just going to manipulate everybody into killing each other, you know? However, by the end of this book, when we see exactly how everything played out, the straight razor cure is Celia's cure to the plague. This is her way of stepping in to fill the the blue crane's shoes. You know, it's uh, yeah, it's not really like it's a little bit about Warden, but Warden doesn't like. A lot of the time, he doesn't solve his problems by killing people in this book. It's like him directly. He only really kills like a couple of Crowley's thugs and then Duncan and Beaconfield. And killing Duncan and Beaconfield didn't solve anything for him. If anything, it made things worse. It did. You know? Oh, yeah. Uh, and and so really, this title referred to Celia. And or, then or, tangentially or crane, with Warden. I imagine as well. Um, and so it's it's a really clever title. And I like I understand why um I probably I understand why they probably wanted him to change the title after publication. Yeah. Um like it's a more approachable title, right? Like it's more marketable. It it tells you, all right, this is this is the place we're going. You know, this is the the thing that you're going to get attached to, low town. You know, uh, and it and it captures that urban fantasy feel, right? You know, when you think of urban fantasy and you think of city of stairs, like the divine cities, a uh, foundry side. You know, there are often the titles are about the cities or the settings because that's the defining characteristic of the subgenre. Hmm. I have to admit the name low town is something I was like, really? That's okay. I, I probably wouldn't have picked up this book if it wasn't for the podcast. Cause I think the title low town is just a little drab, a little vanilla. Um, but Ooh. you know, I picked it up because Polanski, because I have experience yeah. on the podcast and I know Polanski. I'm like, Oh, okay. I'm going to check out an actual series by him. But um, you know, and I have to title, say, I have to say while, while it improved a little bit in the second half, I'm still feeling kind of underwhelmed with Lowtown as a setting. Sure, sure, yeah. Uh, I am I, as a, I, with a genre, so it's not like Polanski, yeah. but yeah. Like, I had the same issue, I brought this up in, in the first episode, where one of the, the things that really defines great urban fantasy is that the settings have character in and of themselves. And Lowtown, I still haven't felt that yet. Like, we got a little bit more in the second half with Kyron Town, where I was like, okay, this is, yeah. you know, but, but I don't have a good feel, uh, like there, there isn't something that's gripping me about this setting mm-hmm. yet. Uh, thankfully the characters are excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but the setting leaves me wanting, uh, it definitely keeps this from being, you know, like a five-star book for me. I think this is more like a 3.5 or a four-star book. 
I can, I can admit that the setting had left me wanting quite a bit as well, but in my case, I had just been chalking it up to my severe, uh, just jaded dis, dis, <laughs> disenchantment with the urban fantasy setting as a whole. And we've done it so much sure. recently. I'm just, yeah, yeah. I was, I wanted, I had mentioned it on the last podcast, like Drew did, but I, I do want to make it very clear that it's not like a Polanski problem that I'm having. It's just a setting price, just a genre thing. I'm kind of burnt out on it. But um, as far as style points, there's one last thing I wanted to talk about. Sure. Um, Polanski's overarching meta level threat, this super creepy scene later with Afonso Catamost in his now delirious state. Uh, state. She, yeah. he, she, he confirmed, she was dancing in the darkness when I called her, waiting endlessly in the center of forever, waiting for a suitor. That, that whole passage was perfectly spooky. I am very much intrigued. That passage alone right there cemented the fact that I am going to be finishing this entire trilogy now. <laughs> I need to see where this is going. I am a sucker for that stuff. Oh, especially so. when you look at the titles, or the title ah, of the third book goodness. in particular. You, know, ah, you just quoted tasty. that. Yes, you just quoted that. I did. And the title of the third book is She Who Waits. And you're yes. like... And of course, and we've had that's some... the name of their death goddess. You know, yes, she who exactly. waits behind. You're like, so this is going somewhere interesting. I like. Yeah, this. I I did actually think of one more style thing, but this is a, this is a really just a, a superficial thing. End of chapter thirty one. I got really confused here. Where this is where Warden is asking Celia about these strange abilities and children. Um, it's immediately after the the boy child goes missing. Um, the Warden asks Celia, and I actually have the quote here. There's something else I wanted to ask you. I spoke to the mother of the last child. She said that he knew secrets without being told them. It reminded me of some of the things that let the crane know you could be trained in the art. Celia answered without looking at me. I'm sure it's nothing. Every child is special yeah. to, a, to a parent. And in this moment, I, Rob Santos, I'm going, yeah, that kind of special precognition, you know, totally standard and kid like that's <laughs> such an exaggerated sweeping under the rug motion. I couldn't take it seriously. I'm stopping and I'm writing. Okay, there we're just he's Warden's not, Warden. What are you what are you doing, Warden? Because he's just like, oh, true enough. He does her last want, farewell and slipped out. Like what? that's one of those those like excellent. I guess this is a good like transition into talking about Warden as a character. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, yeah. It's one of those excellent flourishes where the the lack of description and lack of action tells you more about the character than it would have if Polanski had gone out of his way to describe what was going on in Warden's head there. The fact that Warden just turns away and leaves and like drops the thread tells you, as cynical as he is trying to convince us he is, he doesn't want to think badly of Celia. As, as much as he's refusing her advances he still has a soft spot for her and he doesn't want to like even entertain the beginning of an idea that she could be involved in this in any way it just it irritated me because it was so obvious to me the reader i'm like because at that point i had i mean I, I will admit the celia being the twist was that one came completely out of nowhere for me but in this sorry moment, what's that again what's that sorry i sorry. called that on our first episode Oh, you, you were sus of her, but I was no, like... No, I straight I would... up, I was like, this is my prediction. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I, 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 will, I will give you that. Absolutely nailed. But I, I would not have picked up on it at all. And then Warden is in this moment. I'm sitting here furiously writing on my phone. I'm like, okay, we're just... Why is Warden leaving it right here? How obvious is this? This feels awkward. And then, of course, Celia is revealed at the end. Okay, but I can see the foreshadowing attempt there, or, or at least a little bit of extra character work he's doing there. 
but it just felt so awkward to me that chat that just specifically that sent that scene in chapter 31 See, i was what i don't know maybe this is a style point as well um we're loosely there i this is one of those things like as as stover you know put it when he was chatting with us about like you know kind of seeing behind the curtain like seeing the gears of the story and being more impressed by the the elegance of how the moving parts work together than the actual story itself where it's like you've read so many stories like this you are you, sure. you, yeah, yeah, you're yeah, yeah, preconditioned yeah. to pick up on those hints sure you know it's the same thing we've talked about reading brandon sanderson where it's getting harder for brandon sanderson to trick us and provide twists because we've read so much of his stuff and we understand how he works um but for this I was actually really impressed by it because yes, it does stand out, but at the same time, he balances it out with so much um, showing us evidence for Beaconfield and Brightfellow. And of course the truth is that it was, Seeley was the one in charge, but Brightfellow and Beacon, Beaconfield were involved. You know, it, it was like he he found this really elegant like tug of war in the second half of the book where he dribbles out something that savvy readers will notice and be like oh oh that's evidence and then you get like two straight chapters of not overwhelming but present evidence for the other thing and then he dribbles out another piece that savvy readers will yeah. pick up and and so it's this delicate narrative tug of war that blew me away because even, even I was doubting myself at certain points where I was like, like, is it really just going to be Beaconfield and Brightfellow all along? Like I was starting to think of uh, the Emperor's Blades I by Brian Stacey. I very Stage much remember you casting down like Beaconfield. Come on. It, like, yeah, it was a little convenient. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I talked about how much Celia, like she was so, you know, uh, me, me thinks, uh, Milady doth protest too much yeah, about, yeah, yeah, yeah. about her academics and how she's like, I've only I ever studied the up. things the, the blue crane did. I didn't touch any of that stuff. Like, I don't know anything about that. It's like, yeah, uh-huh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but so that, that very much impressed me. Uh, the way he would drop these occasional hints. There were really only like two or three, uh, but they're, they're there and they're, obvious to a savvy reader yeah yeah for and me it was just it encourages disconnect. it encourages that critical reading it encourages you to engage with the text more and more as you go on where you're starting to like root for things to happen because you want to be right about it you know and like it, it's i was i was just very impressed by by the craft in this yeah i mean <clears throat> It's it's an excellent way to throw a, a character into another into more relief and into into to you know give some fine shading on on the character. It just for me, it was such a glaring red flag at the end of that chapter and the end of that scene. And for Warden to not cap not pick up on any of it was like it was just such a, a, a drastic disconnect that I was left indignant and that the chapter just ended right there. I was like, what? But as as far as Warden himself goes, I don't want to say that I don't like Warden. He's well, he's not a great guy, but he's still very, very fun to read. You know, we, we're constantly getting these little gems thrown in completely nonchalantly. There's only so long one can maintain disapproval faced with the devastating and continuous onslaught of my humor. You know, like these he's it, he's brilliant to read. I love reading him. He's awesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, 
back on the kind of subject of Warden as a character. Oh, my, my yeah. cat was napping on the chair behind me and he just <laughs> got up. Um, was he? Yeah. Keep him away from that machine. <laughs> um, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so it, back to the character of Warden. Um, so you said that you felt a little... Um, you felt he, he was a little flat in the first half and then he gained more depth in the second? Or Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Or I, I got to see him from more different angles in this one. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I know you, you brought up those scenes with Ling Chi uh, where he, <laughs> he just shows fun. this flexibility. They were just uh, fun, those scenes. Yeah. The, the scenes that really hammered home who Warden is for me were the scenes with Beaconfield. Uh, when he meets him in his office, when he talks to him after the duel, and then when he goes to confront him at the end. Th- those three in particular, I thought were very illuminating for the worldview that Warden really, really wants to have. And again, it, Polanski has this kind of understated way that Warden engages with people who are not as cynical as he is. And, and it shows these these cracks in in who warden really is uh he he retains a core of altruism yeah yeah and and then but then at the same time while he's got that he still has plenty of cynical nihilistic armor on top of it and that comes out in whew, uh, a really, really brutal scene where he kills Duncan. He kills his friend. He just That's, murders his friend in cold blood. Yeah, that was. I wasn't sure what I was reading at that point. That was some um, really. That was hard. Like, yeah. I'll tell you. I'll tell you one moment where I really. I don't want to say I connected with with Warren, but where I got. I did, I would say my deepest, most profound look at what I think is Warren. This is moment he had listening to Crowley's obnoxious BS. You know? I mean, what was her name? Albertine. All right, Albertine. Let me ask you, was she worth it? And then he goes on to call her a word that I'm not going to say here right now on the Inking Out Loud podcast. But yep. Warden's internal response was the gem here. I let that seep in through my pores, rubbed at it like a sore tooth, saving it up so I could pay it back. Oh, oh, I was like, Warden, you you gnarly son of a bitch. That is like a sadomasochistic winner. Like that is a zinger of a line. That is, that is Polanski shining right there with that one. I felt like I got more of a feel for warden as a character in that one sentence. than I'd had in the entire first half of the book. Yeah. Yeah. That is raw. That is That is a man under a microscope in mm-hmm. all of its toxic and, Oh. One of those moments where you're like, yeah, oh. this book absolutely <laughs> needed to be in the first person perspective. Yeah. Oof. It's good though. It, it's, it's, it's very, I want to say it's very effective. And it, Polanski is just, he's holding nothing back. I can tell. And it's, I love it. I do love it. Yeah. Uh, so, let's, let's I, move on. Uh, who Ren? do you want to talk about next? Ren? Let's talk about Ren. Yeah. Okay. Uh, how, <laughs> how much did he frustrate you? A lot. You frustrated me a lot. And I yeah. still have a lot of my predictions that I want to maintain going forward. I'll, I'll yeah. elaborate on those again, of course, later. <laughs> but with Ren, uh, like, he felt like a device more than anything else in this book, which... <sighs> yeah. 
Uh, I think that's a good way to put it. Um, his I very much were... think we're going to see him grow up quickly and become a, a really strong quick. central character that's, in this series. Yeah, uh, but that's it. It's like it's He's a, gonna it's have a momentum. It's tough thing to deal with when you're writing a a book this dark, this adult, and a focal character is a child. You know, like even even like a hard bitten street bred child like Ren. It's hard to make that sort of character work in in the adult setting, unless you make them the major point of view character. And obviously, that's not what Plansky was interested in doing. And so here, uh, I I saw him like you said mostly as a plot device. You know, it's he was used to help seed some of the hints about what's going on. And yep. then he was used as the, you know, the damsel in distress to kick off the and he was final act of the book. Also used to show us more about Adolphus and Adeline as well. And oh, throw those 100%. characters into relief yeah. as well. Like, but again, in all of these scenarios, Ren is being used as what he is rather than who he is. Mm-hmm. And it's, getting it's it's irritating especially at the end where i have the boy and that the chapter ends there and i'm just go i had my head my hands going oh i wish i wish that landed as cool as it should have because oh ren you bastard mm-hmm. i was so frustrated with him there yeah I was like, I still if you just listen to warden and adolphus oh dude uh yeah. he wouldn't have been nabbed because he would have been staying at the earl it's like your constant you know? idiotic decision making is keeping you as a plot device and it's pissing yeah. me off. But, but it's realistic, you know? Like it's this is a child who he's, is, he's a street rat, you know? Yeah. And he's he's never been able to trust anybody before and he's struggling to mm-hmm. learn how to trust. Um, yeah, and he will grow, and I imagine yeah. he will grow into himself. He'll like we. Hey, guess what? We found out that he's a child of with a gift now. Oh yeah, we found uh, that out. I a hundred percent believe that he's going to be the one who sort of inherits that mantle of. I don't know if he'll like directly inherit the airy, but I think he's going to no. inherit the mantle of dark, being he's the benefactor. One hundred percent of, of Lowtown. So, well, yeah. Oh, he's he's going to come into conflict with Warden for sure. <laughs> oh, I think he's going to. He's, he's definitely going to be a rival. He's going to get way too big, way too fast. His momentum oh, is going to get out of control. Gonna... The Warden is going to have to put him down. I think, and it's going to be a. Huge I don't think it's going to be a of... fast thing. So no. I very much uh, end of book two. Yeah, let's save this for for predictions at the end. Sorry, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. I hear Ren. I start spitting predictions. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I didn't have much more to say about him other than that, Same. like, you know, how frustrating he was and, and how he came across more as a tool than a person in terms of, like, what he means to the story. Uh, yeah. However, a character whom I thought worked brilliantly was Celia. Really? Yeah. Mm, okay. I yeah. don't think so. Why not? I, well, okay. She worked in that I, I think this the proper seeds were were planted. She she would have completely taken me by surprise if you hadn't uh, <laughs> uh, not gonna say spoiled it because you didn't read it, you didn't know. You just made an excellent prediction. We you know you've done that a few times in the past. It probably would have taken me a, a lot by surprise. So I can say on paper that could be a great character. I just I, it was that whole disconnect with warden having that huge blind side that huge blind spot towards celia that made that pulled me a little bit out of him as a character and and 
uh, I don't know. But yeah, Celia was. It was a, reason, definitely a big moment. Sorry, go ahead. I the reason I like her is because while Warden has this big blind spot that you, you're having a problem with for Celia, yeah. Celia also has a blind spot for Warden. That's very true. And That's it's very true. It That's is also downfall. her undoing. Yeah. And yeah. it's like she was a complicated antagonist because she wasn't really an antagonist for most of the book. And, and even though the twist didn't surprise me, it was satisfying because it provided a really interesting conflict in those final chapters. I loved her conflict and I loved her justifications for it. They didn't feel um, just out of nowhere. They, they, they didn't feel just forced. They, all of them felt organic. She's under an amazing amount of pressure. I can see why she made every single decision that she did. And Mm so I don't want to call her a bad character. I didn't like her, but yeah, Yeah, yeah. I don't say she's a bad character. No. Yeah. Um, what did you think about Beaconfield? Beaconfield, I, <laughs> I'm so glad that he turned out to be just what we thought he was, and there was nothing really. Well, no, sorry, I should say well, it was just what we thought he was. Well, he didn't turn out to be what he was built up to be entirely. Yeah, he, entire. he wasn't like directly engaging in blood magic, but he, he's he a was terrible a, person, like a good old fashioned traitor, a horrible, a traitor. nasty bully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that too. Like, He's committing capital treason, trying to sell out the country. <laughs> yeah. But, but like, again, I, I love that because it's, there was so much in the final act of this book, the last 25%, so much that complicated every principal character, whether it was Warden, Celia, Beaconfield, Brightfellow, Adolphus, Yancey, like, he had a great Ren, yeah. You know, everybody had something else come to light that complicated the very casual and easy impression that Polanski built up through the first two two thirds to three quarters. Like that's that's just some great character work, and yes. and it yes, and it didn't ever yes. feel unearned. It felt natural to those characters. I, I loved Beaconfield's final line. It just, it's like, I didn't, you're not the detective I thought you were, you know, just to yeah. get that last little bah on there. That felt just so petty and so brilliantly Beaconfield. And, you know, I just, exactly. I'm kind of disappointed he's not going to be sticking around. Yeah. Cause he's, he's like the only character we see who could really verbally spar yes. with, with, uh, Aborted. And then it's there's like whatever he, he always had to get in that that like parting shot, that last uh, line where where it's like uh you know, when they're leaving after their little um breaking after the duel, and yeah. he's like, you know, uh what, what was the name of the guy you killed? It began with a W. Um, um not Wil- uh, Wilkes, Wilkes. 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 I think it was yeah. Wilkes. Yeah, Wilkes. Yeah. yeah, just because I remember because the- uh, yeah, he's like, you know, say hi to Wilkes for me. It's like <laughs> I don't know if that was exactly the line, but that was essentially the line. Um, yeah. Yeah. Ugh, so good. I love that. Warden got the chance to verbally spar with Beaconfield and he got the chance to like verbally dance with Ling Chi. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, Adolphus. Do you have any other? Yeah. Okay. Adolphus. Adeline. Yeah. I have them both together as characters in my second half here. So again, we get the, the complication of Adolphus yes. Uh, yes. where he he shows up and he's like geared up for war and you're going, oh yeah, here oh, we go. Yeah. <laughs> and then he backs down and he lets Warden convince him that he's not 
in shape for this. The, he, he lets one he poke a hole. You know, and hey, that was such an unexpected thing. You know, like I was, I was all pumped for for Warden and Adolphus to go to war together, like they did in the past. Yeah, and I, I still remember. think it's gonna happen eventually. Oh yeah, but oh, it yeah. was, it was a satisfying surprise seeing Adolphus's uh, inner conflict come to the surface, despite oh, not ever having a, a point of view from him. You know. Yeah, Adol- like, and I remember expressing some some uh, confusion and saying, Adolphus is an enigma to me. I just can't get a feel for him because you think he's such a hard ass. He, he comes off, of course, as this, even even with Warden's respect for him, you know. But at the same time, he's, he's, such, a, uh, he's such a puppy dog. He's always so yeah. emotionally traumatized over thinking Warden is dead. And I just, I wasn't really getting that, what kind of care. I couldn't get a read on that guy, for, for lack of a better term. But now I do. Yep. Now I do. He is he I, he is this guy. He's this super tall, intimidating, bearded, leather clad, eye patch wearing, tattoo sporting, badass biker with the heart of a teddy bear. But he's a and human now that I get being. It, yeah, like he's I'm totally not in. just a killing machine. This this context that we do get that now that we know, okay, he and Adeline just can't have kids of their own. That, that brings the both of them to life in a way that they weren't living previously. For me, you know, which Ren mm-hmm. is this. We were just talking about it. He's such a nasty little brat that I was frustrated by everyone's patience with him, you know, except for Warden himself. Warden doesn't have exactly a lot of patience for him. But they all fit together in this way that I appreciate now with that context. I like this little three-way unit of Adolphus, Adeline, Wren. And it was Adolphus yeah. in particular. That scene where, where Warden had to set him down and set him down hard. You know, this is, <laughs> oh, God, you know. It's, I have a quote here. You were always big, but you're fat now. You're slow, and you can't sneak. And you don't have it in you to kill a man anymore. Not the way I'm going to do it. I'm not sure that you ever did. I have no time to flatter your vanity. Every second you waste, the boy gets closer to death. Get the fuck out of my way. And the Dolph is just deflating. Yep. Oh, my God. That punch to the gut. Oh, so good. It was such a heavy, heavy line, heavy moment from... Yeah, a debut author, really, so that's good stuff. I don't know. Was this his debut? This is his debut. Well, at least his debut novel. He obviously I, had... I, I should have looked this up. Um, I'm, I'm saying this with 97% certainty. Uh, yeah, I really should have looked this Hold up before... Um, before yep. we Hold recorded time. this On Goodreads, Daniel Pilecki's debut novel, fantasy that's not completely wow. fantasy. Yeah. I am I am extremely impressed. Yeah, yeah. You gotta you, you always have to take a an author's publishing order into proper context when you're talking about something. At least if you're going to be reviewing it, I think at something like an objective level. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah for sure. And now now I'm curious. When was the builders? 2016. So that was like wow, five years after. Five this. years after. Wow. Okay. I don't know All how right. I know that one actually. I didn't look that one up. I'm going to make sure I got that one right. Um, I'm on tour.com. Uh, 2015, November 2015. 2015. Okay. So yeah, yeah, I know it was year. one of the one of the very early, um, kind of like flagship tour.com. Yeah, he won me over with that. That was brilliant. I still think the builders is better overall than this than this book was. Yeah. But you know, he's more uh, experienced as a writer by that point too. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, anyway. 
Good, um, good for him, dude. <laughs> yeah, dude, for real. You know, it's good stuff. Adeline, anything? I, I was a little dis- like I wanted Adeline to have a little more than just being mm. a motherly, concerning figure. I mean, and someone around to constantly make eggs that don't have shells in them. I mean, that seemed to be on the purpose. <laughs> those two things. Uh, I I wasn't super. I don't, I don't know. I didn't need anything more from her. She didn't have a place in the story beyond that like supporting role. Yeah, I think I want to see that place. We'll, we'll probably get more from her as we go on, I hope. Uh, as we get more from Adolphus as well, because yeah. they are, you know, like, there's clearly so much history there to be explored. Uh, and Polanski is unafraid to use flashbacks as we saw. Oh boy. Uh, A little you know, too unafraid. <laughs> they're just like, they all descend at once. I was like, Whoa, we are just doing, okay. There was not really a lot of transition. It was kind of abrupt, wasn't it? Oh, it's usually just like a flashback chapter. Tossed you're right. In. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Um, you're right. That's That was a dumb point. You're right. If it's just a chapter, it has absolutely the excuse to do that. Never mind. I so, take that back. So, yeah, I, I expect we'll get some some uh, flashbacks to give us more history and, and development for Adeline and, and Adolphus. Um, Shall we go into miscellaneous? Anything yes. Else? Yeah, actually, yes. Um, I have one more character to talk about, but I'll save that for favorite scenes. Oh, uh, Oh, because what? miscellaneous, okay. <laughs> I actually have quite a lot of miscellaneous points, mostly <laughs> about things that just cracked me up. Okay, all right, all right, cool. cool. Um, like <laughs> when he first goes to the brothel, and uh, first goes to the brothel. Yeah, and, and he's talking with the. <laughs> oh God, he's talking with Myrie, and. I always wondered what had happened to Matt Edward and the rest of his people. Imagine my surprise to discover that the man who ended syndicate presence in Lowtown was coming to pay me an afternoon visit. And and he goes, imagine my excitement. Oh. And then it is one of I the relatively few advantages of being yes. quite physically misshapen yes. that you can yes. generally dismiss honest arousal as a woman or as a reason for a woman's advances. <laughs> I remember, ha- I remember what it was you're talking about halfway through, and I went, oh, this is okay. Yep, yep, yep. Oh, my gosh. And I just, I just highlighted that and wrote LMAO. <laughs> yep, yep. I had that LMAO uh, note in my e-reader here for the only thing better than ambushing a motherfucker is ambushing a motherfucker who thinks he's ambushing you. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I got to say, while a lot of these are um, you know, things that made me laugh, Polanski's also really good at writing a lie that just makes you go, oh... Oh like, yeah, uh, hey, Ooh, yeah. Like for instance, uh, in uh, the Blue Dragon, right? That's the name of the inn. Um, Which one? The Chiron Inn, where like Ling Chi's headquarters. Oh, I. That's I don't remember that. I think it was the Blue Dragon. Uh, anyway, he's talking with Crowley, and uh, <laughs> Crowley goes, and that monkey talk. Speak oh. Regan, you slant-eyed bastards. Oh, it's no. It's not that hard once you get the hang of it. Here, we'll practice. Shu Nima, I said. Nima, he repeated, then chuckled at his own awkwardness. What does that mean? The tattooed Chiron said something in his native tongue. I nodded at him. It means, end this motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> that's a boom yeah kind of moment like, oh, so good just oof. that is um, yeah 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, these are all over the place in this book. Polanski's just, they, they do appear like mushrooms on after a rain. They're just nice. They're like, ooh, here's another one, and there's another one, and there's another one. You can find them everywhere. Yeah. Or like uh, the beginning of chapter 39, you know, with the snow and everything. And he goes, by the time I arrived beneath the sign of the Grey Lantern, my boots were soaked straight through, and I found myself wondering whether the old man might give me an extension on account of the weather. Like, oh, just, the old man that was on the deadline. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the <laughs> idea of him just like idly wondering, like, I wonder if I could use the bad weather as an excuse. Uh, like, yeah. <laughs> like calling into work. On a, yeah, exactly. It is his old boss, right? <laughs> He's hey, like, hey, you're still coming to work, right? <laughs> yeah, hey, hey, boss, traffic's really bad. I'm not going to make it in today. Like... <laughs> Oh boy! Roads are terrible. Did you notice there? There are a couple of more contemporary kind of slang phrases that are just kind of pop, just just ever so subtly sprinkled in that they you, they almost pass you without even noticing. So I pick. Go okay, ahead. Go. Go. No, no I, you go. Suss you go. out. I, I saw at one point. Suss out. Okay, that's that is more recent thing. Although I have heard it in older media before, but at one point after that, we had this. Uh, this threat, I think, actually was Crowley. Again, when, when Warden was threatening Crowley, and he says, I'm not going to fade you. I'm going to let you walk. That's all yeah. right. I'm going to fade you. I saw that. I wrote that dot, 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 ellipses. went, bro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I did notice a couple of those, but I also, like, I had to remind myself, as much as this feels like it should be a a standard, you know, kind of like medieval fantasy setting, it's not. Like they, this is a, an advancing, like borderline industrial setting, yeah, you know, like sure. low town is full of like factories and stuff and they have gunpowder and cannons and like, you know, there's, it's a, it's a more advanced world, uh, even if they don't have like computers. I'm and, sure there's and stuff. a subgenre punk but, for it. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it, it, so I was more willing to just kind of skate by those things uh, because of that because of the, the sort of um, cultural level. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I uh, I learned quite a few new words in this book. More words than I've really written down that I had learned in any other book so far. Honestly. Really? Yeah. And again, we're in a point where our main point of view character is somebody who, in his internal narration, speaks pretty plainly and speaks pretty low. You know, so the fact that I'm still learning more new words than I've ever learned before in a book this size, it really goes to say a lot. I learned puerile, 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 puerile. Oh, now I know it. Now I've heard it. Okay, now that I've heard it, I just haven't seen it spelled before. Childishly silly, immature. That's what that word means. Yep. Um, inculcate, to instill uh, or teach. Yes. Uh huh. Conviviality, conviviality, Con- conviviality. Thank you. Yeah. Quality of being friendly and yeah. lively, friendly. Like gregarious. Yeah, sybarites. I did almost didn't want to look that one up, and uh, I was pretty close. You know, describes someone self-indulgent in their fondness for sensuous luxury. Yep. And the last one I looked up was uh, celerity. It just means swiftness of movement. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what those words had meant before this. Great although I've words. heard pure words several all times. of them. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, man, this just makes me so excited to get to Gene Dude, Wolf. Gene Wolf. I knew you were going to bring up Gene Wolf. I knew it. I was like, this. Is, when I get to that one, I'm going to have to read it with a dictionary beside me, aren't I? Well, actually, I have one on my e-reader, so it'll come in very useful. Mm, it, it will come in, in useful, but there will be words that even your Kindle dictionary doesn't know. Oh, okay. Nice. There's a reason why there's a companion book called Lexicon Earthus that a couple of like mega fans 
of the Book of the New Sun went and like dug through etymologies and and all sorts of like crazy stuff to figure out <laughs> what some of these words mean. <laughs> oh my but, goodness! But that's a conversation for another day. For another, yeah. Um. Uh, any more miscellaneous? Or should we get the predictions? Just keep going. Yeah, let's Anything. get to predictions. Okay. I've already so, made a few about Ren, but yeah. Uh, so we were talking about Ren earlier, and you were saying you feel like he's going to become like a big deal too fast and, and come into conflict. I I see him being a conflict for the third book. Uh, Crowley, the way the way I felt this book was set up is that Crowley's going to be an issue in the second book. And Ren is going to be an issue in the third book. But there's going to be a bigger issue in both of those books. Uh, the Old Man and Black House is going to be one of them. And the uh, the demons are going to be the other. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I just I feel like <clears throat> Ren's going to get... He's going to learn too much too quickly. Um, he's going to get too big for his britches. His magical ability is going to run away with him. He's going to think just like he does now that he knows the, the, the way to fix everything. He's going to, in some way, become a rival to Warden. I think Warden's going to have to Obi-Wan his ass. Um, <laughs> but the, another prediction that I came, that came to me, actually, while we we're talking about Adolphus and that whole little family unit they have there, mm. I can imagine Adolphus are, uh, somehow dying or, 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 sacrificing himself for Ren to fix a mistake that Ren has made for himself. And that's going to traumatize Ren so much that it'll lead him down like a darker path. I think like Adolphus mm. is going to be linked with a major source of trauma in Ren's future. Uh, yeah, I could see that. I could definitely see that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, see here. She who waits. I can't, I cannot wait to see where that's going. Although I yeah. really have no idea what else to say. We don't really, I don't have a lot of tools with which to work on that front yet. And I, I think that's appropriate. I think this, this makes it a much more contained book. If we, uh, we're focusing on, you know, still establishing things. It was, it was a great read, but I don't really have any other predictions at the moment. Okay. Yeah. My, my like only, that. my only other prediction is a, is kind of a general thing. And that is the plague may not be coming back right away, but the plague is coming back. Oh Yeah. Yeah, that's that, just that a is that is coming. a that's... big old gun on the mantle. Yep. In in Act One, that needs to come down before the Check end of the series. Check Adam Bond. So, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Let's let's move into favorite scenes. Bitchin. Yes. Let's do it. Uh, do you have any honorable mentions? One. Actually, okay. I have one, and that is the beginning of Chapter Thirty Four with Adolphus and Ren building the snow fort. Oh. <laughs> it sucks that Warden was in such a dark place at this point in the story because he had four days left because that's actually what his mantra, he was dwelling on that. Yep. Four days, seven minus three days of four days, whatever. Because that would have been some seriously new, like needed chillaxing time there. you know. And I'll just come right out and say it, particularly since we're talking about Warden in this particular situation here. You have not lived until you've rolled a joint and smoked it before building a snow fort. Take it from your resident stoner Canadian, perhaps. Couple of good joints, box of Timmy's double-double, parking lot full of good packable snow. Husky on a harness, you're in for a good time. It was it, it it was very pure and heartwarming that scene. Yeah, it definitely was. Uh, so my my honorable mention was uh, Warden just like barging into Black House, just like strolling through. Nobody like says a word to him. Nobody stops him. He just goes straight up and knocks on the door of the old man's office, and then that whole scene, the again the verbal sparring 
you know, just great wordplay. And then the way it ends, you know, there will be some cleanup required. It'll be quick, but it'll be noisy. Oh. As you said, we're special operations. Yeah. When I do you, it'll be <clears throat> quiet as a chapel. He let out an embarrassed chuckle, chagrined at my misbehavior. Such a temper. You'll never make it to my age if you don't learn to enjoy life a little. I didn't respond, closing the door on the blank office and the evil man who lived there. That's that's good shit. The evil man who lived there. I had to stop him. Okay, so we're we're simplifying it a little bit more there, but I can Mm. see the reason for it. It, Mm -hmm. it, There's really only one way to be that blunt and you can't use anything fancy. Anything. Like, that's... That's why I love that so much is that yeah. this is a, a story that is mired in relativism and and mired in shades relativism. of gray. And here, from our main character, we get this absolute statement, just as you said, blunt. Blunt as mm. a battering ram. The yep. evil man who lived there. Yeah. Yeah. There can be so. no sharp edges on anything blunt. That yeah. I yeah. Uh, so that was your honorable mention, you said, yeah? Yes. Okay, so number three then? Yeah, go for it. Don't forget your coat, Adolphus added, even though Ren was already heading toward it. Lol. And then the warden spends the next five minutes grilling Adolphus over his protectiveness of the boy. Just just, you know, he, the whole thing of just because you've had him for three months doesn't make him three months old. But then we have Ren coming back at the end of the chapter and, and warden himself saying, like, Hey, take your coat off. It's warm in here. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just so endearing. A lot of my favorite scenes are coming out of this just little dysfunctional unit they have there. I love yeah. it. Yeah, little family yeah. dynamic. Yeah, yeah, nice. yeah, or lack thereof. Good. So my third favorite, and it's I want to make this very clear. This is my favorite for what it means in terms of the writing and the story, not for what actually happens. Okay. This is the beginning of chapter forty-six. I crouched by a bush 20 yards out from the back gate of Beaconfield's mansion. I darkened my skin with face black, and the wire hanging from my hands shimmered in the moonlight. I was trying to think up a way that Duncan didn't have to die. And And you get up, you know. I cursed the quirk of fate that had mandated the smiling watchman's presence here instead of by a fire sipping his whiskey. But there was nothing for it. I closed my eyes briefly. Then I was up, a stone flung against the outer wall, drawing the unsuspecting sentry. Ten yards, five yards, and I was behind him, the loop pulled tight. The garret is quiet but slow, and Duncan took a long time to die. Just, oh my gosh. And there's the description of his death, and then, I'm sorry, Duncan. I wish it had gone another way. Moments like these where I honestly don't want a warden to succeed, though. You know, like, like, yeah, yeah. It's just talk uh, about complicating your characters. (laughs) Hey, yeah, complicating your characters like calculus. Oh my goodness. Um, my second favorite. Yeah, Operation Ingress and the decision to kill Adelaide. That was some. That was that was some crazy writing. Just crazy writing. There are moments where a main character just stops being just a main character and they become a person. And this is one of them. It's excellent stuff. Yes. Uh, 
and the motivation. Harrowing, harrowing scene. The motivation because he was get, he was uh, he was avenging Broski. Uh, starts with a sh. Can't remember his name. Oh, I don't remember his name either. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but yeah, it's there. I, I you, you know what I'm thinking. Uh, my second favorite. Go ahead. Is uh, Warden setting the trap for Crowley, but but specifically, <laughs> yeah, specifically okay. his desperate conversation with Ling Chi. Like you know, we're we got all of this. You know, it is yeah. a blot on my honor that I am forced to intrude upon the tranquility of my mentor, one that I will work tirelessly to expunge. You know, the worries of my beloved friend do credit to his sense of principle. Blah 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 blah. <laughs> and then. Happiness beyond measure is the lot of your servant, to know that I am granted consideration by one whose word is law and whose hand shelters his children. He blinked twice, the shift in his placid countenance impossible to miss. Shelter. Well does my protector know that innocence is no guard against the wolf, and actions born of amity are like to destroy us. Like, you can feel the urgency where, like, he's gotta stick to the forms, right? And then he hits the point where he's like, I'm going to stick to the forms, but I'm not going to stick to the forms anymore. You can just feel the pace of the scene pick up. And, oh my gosh, it's so good. And and it starts getting more and more blunt as the conversation goes on. And, you know, or he, he just decides, he's like, I can't, I can't waste time anymore. They're in there. It gives you all, all this reason for this collective sigh of relief in this small moment later. That's like, oh, okay. You yeah. hear what it, yeah. No, I, I just, I loved, I loved that juxtaposition of this incredibly formalized, bureaucratic, ritualistic bullshit and the intense urgency yes. of a life or death situation. Yeah, just, you know, oh. despite how much this is being said, <clears throat> there's like you can just feel the quiet in the tension. It's like, ah, <laughs> uh, yes, good stuff. yeah, yes, indeed. Oh, it's phenomenal stuff. My favorite scene. Okay, my favorite scene is the end of chapter thirty-three. This whole tell them passage. I, I obviously I can't quote the entire thing because it's long, and I don't think I can go on for minutes at a time. I'd be really pushing it to do that on a podcast, but you know, yeah, feel the lines tell them about the second night after they put mama and papa on the wagons when the neighbors ransacked our house just walked in tell them about henny's face when i came back without food for the third day in a row i guess i could have told her a lot of things now that, uh, it's just a small fraction of the passage there but this was hands down the best scene in the book in my opinion that deep that dark that visceral look at the core of everything warden has learned to fear in his life what a brilliant and genuine moment. It was a stroke of true, honest, true genius that Polanski yep. was having, I think, when he wrote that passage. Nice. And my favorite. Nice. Uh, that one I did not make my list, but it was in consideration. Mm. Uh, it was a late cut. Um, my favorite scene uh, was actually from the first half of the book. It was Warden meeting Mariki the first time. And her entire attitude being the, you know, the icy bitch. <laughs> yeah. And then the ice bitch, isn't it? Oh, icy uh, bitch. I don't remember if it was icy or ice bitch, but the, but yeah. uh, the incredible verbal prowess of those who would have named her, of course. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. 
Um, but but then that shift uh, where he sets off the second act of the book, you know, Mariki gave me a long piercing look like she was trying to see my soul through my rib cage. Whatever she made out through my aging mass of bone and muscle seemed to be enough because after a moment she reached over the body. Do you know what this is? She asked, drawing my attention to the child's inner thigh and the small array of red bumps that defaced it. I tried to speak, but nothing came. Figure out what the fuck is going on, she said, her constant bitterness replaced by fear. And figure it out quick. Mm. That's 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 a mid-season pause right there. That's good stuff. That is like yeah. A plus hook for the next episode material right there. Yeah, that is how you kick off the second act of a book. That right there is. <laughs> Uh, uh, and it. and so I I mentioned this briefly with with characters because we didn't talk about Mariki. I love her. She is awesome. Like she's such an entertaining character, and I want Warden to have to deal with her all the time going forward. Their <laughs> to have to their deal interactions with her all the time. <laughs> their interactions are amazing. Like yeah, she better come back. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. I can see that working too. One hundred percent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, she didn't really stand out to me as as a character, like outside of what was really happening around with everyone else. But um, yeah, I can see that as being some fertile ground which to explore another character and, and bring someone up to, you know, enjoy with everybody else and, and, and test the chemistry. Like she, yeah, she's entertaining to read for sure. This whole book has been awesome. I don't really have any complaints yeah. about this book. It's I'd give it out of five, straight up four, easy. I think. Yeah, like like I said, my only like major complaint with this book was that I wanted more from the setting. Um, but the, the writing chops here are, are outstanding. Uh, he, he does such a great job developing. And as I said, complicating all of his characters, not just warden. Uh, it's, (laughs) I didn't know it was a debut, like for a debut, this is freaking great. Like, yeah. So I'm, I'm excited. I, I have restrained myself from reading, uh, from starting tomorrow, the killing. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to be starting tonight for sure. I'm going to spend some time writing, uh, uh, working on the short story. And then, uh, we actually never got to cover, which we'll have to talk about maybe the next episode is, is the complete lack of anything resembling this male gaze or this greasy male gaze that we would kind of expect in a character who is as, you know, dark as warden, right? We're not getting a whole lot of that. So we'll talk about that in the next episode. It's just coming to me now. That is a really interesting. He's not a Harry Dresden. This, this guy is he? No, he's definitely not. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. No, no, no mentions of training bras in this book. <laughs> Shade thrown, smoke uh, bomb. Go. <laughs> but 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 it, it, it's funny because I didn't really think about this as a like hard boiled detective story, but it kind of is at times. It's sure, just I like guess. Yeah. it's an ex hard boiled detectives. He's talking story. about following leads and and calling in favors. Yeah, yeah sure, sure. Like, well, yeah, like huh. I just there was a couple lines when he's thinking about uh, uh, Myeri's tan flesh or something like that. And I was like, okay, that's oh, I just I never really get that from Warden. This is like a first from him, and we're three quarters of the way through the book. Huh. Yeah, like he, it's like he has, um, he's got like kind of like an incel attitude, but like a a more a more <laughs> internalized incel jargon. attitude where he, like yeah, yeah, he's not bitter at women. Because he's just like 
bitter at his life in general. <laughs> like, yeah. like, like he's able to laugh at himself, you know, about how ugly he is, you know, sure. and, and, <laughs> and he's able to, uh, be self-aware enough that even when women are throwing themselves at him or maybe not literally throwing themselves, but making relatively overt advances on him, he's Overtaken. self-aware enough to say no. Because he's like, this wouldn't be he'll good say, for me. No, you don't. Like he'll yeah. straight up tell them, no, you really don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a little bit of um, croaker there too. We're still. I'm getting off. Yeah, there is a little bit of croaker there. Here, yeah. but yeah. Sorry, um, I, I realized you were trying to wrap it up there, but no, no, it's good stuff. It's fine. This is good stuff, though. It is good stuff. Like That's I, how you can tell it's good. Yeah, I enjoyed the crap out of this book. I'm super excited to read the second one. Uh, once again, Daniel Polanski has delivered. Uh, this, this guy, I could see him. It. I could see him becoming, you know, a new a new favorite author. He I brought it say, and he set it down on the table and he opened it. He's I will it. say, I went into this book with a certain expectation, and that expectation was City of Stairs. I don't think this book is as good as City of Stairs. I think I agree. Yeah, actually, I do agree. But it is still good. Like obviously as we just yeah. spent like most of an episode glowing with, with only like some minor criticisms. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's an airtight plot. It's very well paced. The characters shine, they leap off the page. Uh, you know, he, he's clearly has a grasp of story and language that you want from a writer who's going to write this sort of first person story. And he knows when like, to ignore that. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. it, it it was very impressive, even if it didn't quite reach that level of, you know, City of Stairs. But look, this is only the first book in a trilogy. We'll see if uh, if the second and third can can get up to that divine. I have no doubt that we're going to be saying a lot of the same or more in the next book. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, I have with faith. that said, uh, final draft. What have you been Hell drinking? Yeah. So. I was going to make a, an obnoxiously flavored coffee once again, but <laughs> I decided not to do that. Um, I did end up finding something rather delicious, actually, something that I don't have very often. And this is just a plain Irresistibles brand pineapple juice. I am just drinking straight up well-mixed pineapple juice. Nothing alcoholic added, just a straight up refreshing Caribbean flavored or inspired drink. And it's um, very, very, very tasty. Although it's, it's, I'm sure it's got an absolutely embarrassing amount of sugar yeah but it's it's awesome it's like i don't I'm know if i could think of a sweeter juice than straight I, pineapple juice pineapple juice is dope it's really it's really nice and thick too it's not like thin i've been having yeah. to swirl it quite a bit no, while straight I was, up i thought you were drinking like a hazy ipa or something no you know? dude it's it's straight it looks like it looks like i'm honestly drinking eggnog or just like blended egg but it's just pineapple juice and it's sweet and delicious it's like very very nice so I probably oh, won't have man. this very often, though. But uh, yeah, that's what I'm sipping on for today. Well, uh, speaking of hazy IPAs, <laughs> hey, what's up? <laughs> what are you drinking, dude? So, the can I'm holding in my hands right now is from Anchorage Brewing Company. Hmm. The old standby. Yes. This is an India Pale Ale, double dry hopped with Galaxy hops, and it is all Galaxy hops, a uh, single hop, um, which is interesting for Anchorage. Normally they do like crazy, you know, like four or five different 
you know, Citra, Mosaic, Nelson Savan, Motuka, like blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but this is just straight Galaxy double dry hop, 6.4%. And this is what I wanted to just yell at Ren oh. over and over when he kept rejecting the hospitality of Warden and Adolphus and this is Adeline. Gonna be great. This is going to be fantastic. You'll be fine. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Calm down. You're a teenager. The world is not ending. You just think it is. Oh, man. Your world is not ending. Yeah, yeah. Ren is frustrating the crap out of me. If, if I have a complaint about this book, it's just the one-dimensionality of Ren and the the... He weighs only used one way as a character, as a plot vehicle. But yeah, sure, I'm sure. sure I'm sure that's gonna that's gonna fade as we go forward. And he's gonna come into his own. So I'm looking forward to seeing how Absolutely. Polanski does that. Not if Absolutely. how. So. Yeah. All right. So this has been either episode 155 or 156. We're still not sure how things are gonna. We, we can't count that play out. Be, if we're being entirely honest. Uh, so there there was an episode we we uh, recorded and lost the audio for one of our guests their audio file got corrupted and we have not had a chance to re-record and it's been like two months almost since that episode was recorded that long eh? and wow. uh yeah it was like early december that was like a and, month. dang and uh i don't know if or when we're going to be able to re-record it so if we don't this is 155 if we do it's 156 <laughs> you'll know before we do yeah uh next up we are going to be heading straight into book two of Lowtown. Tomorrow, The Killing. And we're going to be reading the first 26 chapters. Uh, just just over 50% of the book. <laughs> For a second, I thought you meant we were recording tomorrow. I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> oh, get started. No. no. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Yeah. So, as I said, the first 26 chapters of Tomorrow, The Killing. As Rob said at the top of the episode, if you're interested in supporting the show, you can check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash inkingoutloud or on Coffee that is ko-fi.com slash inkingoutloud. As always, I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me, my co-host, Rob Santos. Right here. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.